Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this week is Romans 1, 18-32, which is a long reading, but it is very much worth it. What this is, of course, is showing that the wrath of God is revealed against men, and particularly because men are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It's not that the unregenerate man is ignorant of the truth about God, but rather he can see it clearly, he can see that things are wrong, and that his actions are wrong, and yet still he continues in them. He suppresses that truth. It's a matter of will and volition. And of course, because of that will and volition to ignore God, God gives this those people over. As such were some of us, he gives them over to their own lusts and destructive lifestyle. And that is the beginnings and the first fruits of the wrath of God that is revealed against them that will ultimately be made full in hell. But even now, they have a chance of repentance. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, and the birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own flesh to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient." being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, whoops, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Well, good morning again. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 12.
we have made it to this part of Matthew. And at first, when we started this section, I was saying that it was contrasting different responses to Jesus. And there's a degree in which that's true, but that was misplaced. The emphasis is more indeed on Jesus being rejected, rejected by his own people, and particularly by the Pharisees. And that is very clear as we go into this passage today. As Jesus' promise of rest that's there to anyone who will accept their need for him is not welcome to the Pharisees. And that begins in Matthew 12, 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him. Insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. Father, in our study of Matthew, we've read words like these before. And I think we really should still pause to reflect on how magnificent it is that your son is able to cast out a demon and heal this man's problem. We know nothing else about him. But he couldn't speak and he couldn't, uh, couldn't hear because of the demon, because he was demonized. And yet because he interacted with Jesus and Jesus had the authority to and the compassion to do so, he went away whole. I ask that you would continue to work in us today to have us rejoice in the person of your Son, that we would exult in the gospel and thus exalt you. I ask that you would guide what I say here today, allow it to adequately and accurately explain the text, and may your Spirit, who is always with us, particularly impress these truths upon us so that we understand them, that we believe them, and that we live in light of them, rejoicing all the more and being enslaved to the righteousness with which you have clothed us. And so, Lord, I pray for these things in the name of your Son. Amen. In Tolkien's work, The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins is The Hobbit, and he's taken on as a burglar for Ivy's Fellowship of Dwarves. The dwarves are on a mission to reclaim their lost treasure from a dragon. And Bilbo's job is to go in, get some of the treasure, and come back out without the dragon noticing. Eventually, eventually, in chapter 12 of the book, they make it to the dragon stronghold, what used to be the dwarves' stronghold. They have their secret entrance, and Bilbo goes in, and he manages to be undetected, catches the dragon smog as he is in his afternoon nap. He grabs a cup, he brings it back out, and the dwarves start rejoicing. Everything's so exciting, they start to have the glimpse of the treasure they once had, starting to make all things right. And then they hear the roar. And as Tolkien describes it, the dwarves forgot their joy and their confident boasts of a moment before. 
and cowered down in fright. Smaug was still to be reckoned with. It does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Dragons may not have much real use for all their wealth, but they know it to an ounce, especially after a long possession. And Smaug was no exception. The dwarves thought they could just take this one thing, maybe take more in bits and pieces and slowly regain their treasure. But unless they dealt with Smaug, unless they chained or killed the dragon that was protecting the treasure, they would never be able to plunder his goods. And so too, as Jesus comes on the scene and he's getting to the point of establishing his kingdom, he's getting to the point of inaugurating the redemption through his blood, there's a problem. This is the domain of darkness. The small g God of this world has a claim. And he has to be reckoned with before any of the goods, that is you and me, can be plundered and to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that's what we see and what Jesus teaches in this passage. There's really a two parts to this passage. It's the setting of the scene in regard to exercising a demon, and then Jesus' speech how he responds to the Pharisees' rejection of him to demonstrate that his authority is from above. He has the ability to transfer anyone into his future kingdom. And so we need to accept him. And so in verses 22 to 24, the setting comes up. And it's familiar. It's a situation we've already seen at one point, and it's almost exactly the same. Because there in Matthew 9, 32 to 34, there's a short description of a miracle, of an exorcism, of a demon being cast out, and immediately two different responses. The exorcism creates a dilemma. And so in verse 22, we see the exorcism itself. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumbed, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb man both spake and saw. So unlike what I said in my prayer, he cannot see and he cannot speak. And it's all because he has been demonized, demon-possessed, and, and Jesus here cast it out. We don't know how. We could ask all day, did he touch him? Did he say words? We know nothing more. This is not Matthew's point. Instead, we get into two responses. Verse 23, And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Verse 23 is the better response in this situation. 
But it still stands as only a question. And indeed, the question is expecting a negative response from the crowds. They're asking, is this possible that this man is the son of David, the longed-for Messiah who would come to save his people from their sins, to deliver Israel out of the ultimate exile? They ask the question, but they don't expect the quite certain, at least, that this is the right thing. But the mere suggestion that it could be means the Pharisees have to respond. Notice they're not responding to what they saw in what Jesus did, but what they heard. They almost have to be responding to what the people are saying in verse 23. And they're trying to squash this possible identification before it starts becoming popular and say, you are wrong to think that he does this great miracle by the power of God. They're saying, yes, there has to be some sort of supernatural work involved in this type of miracle, but the Pharisees say that he is doing it by Beelzebub. He's doing it by the prince of the devils. It is Satan's power, not God's. And with the reality of this type of exorcism, there really are only two options of what to do with Jesus, and it's our, these options. We either accept that he is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God, or we say that he is a liar, pulling a whole trick. And I urge all of us to accept him as Lord and take refuge in him protect ourselves and flee from the wrath of God that is against our sin by coming to him and how he paid it on the cross. And I think Jesus' response to the Pharisees shows us more of why that is the response we should have. Where he shows that his authority is from above, and if his authority is from above, we have nothing more than to accept what he said when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so in verses 25 to 37, Jesus responds. He starts off first in verses 25 to 27 by particularly saying that the claim of verse 24 is absurd. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. Now, there's another odd thing going on in the beginning of verse 25. Because in verse 24, the Pharisees heard something and then they spoke. But Jesus' response is connected not to what they said, but to the fact that he knew their thoughts as if he's responding to their motivations, not just their words. But Matthew, at this point, hasn't told us their motivations. Said we have to tease it out from how Jesus responds to them. 
And his first response is, what you are claiming is absurd. It's illogical. There's no reason why you would come to that conclusion. And in verses 25 to 26, he gives his first reason. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? If we believe that Satan is smart in how he strategizes, then we have reason to believe that he wouldn't attack himself. Because that's not a winning strategy. In words made, popularized, uh, made popular by Abraham Lincoln, a house divided against itself cannot stand. If the South had seceded, if the Civil War had prolonged, America would have been vulnerable. If Satan is going out and casting out Satan and fighting against himself, his kingdom, his house, everything he's working to try to preserve would crumble. It's absurd to think that he would be giving men power to do works of casting out demons. Certainly, he could give men power, but why would he, if he had the choice, destroy his own self? Or as the translation note in the New English translation makes pretty clear, Satan would not seek to heal. But that's exactly what the Pharisees are claiming that he's doing. But then Jesus goes one further and gives a second reason, essentially saying that the Pharisees are inconsistent that there must be something else going on about why they are attributing Jesus' works to the devil rather than to God. Because when the children of Israel, or maybe even specifically the children of the Pharisees, cast out demons, they don't claim it's by Beelzebub. So why here? Their, their motivations are very suspect. And indeed, one theologian correctly said, what this amounts to is not just being wrong, but that they're having a conscience disputing of the indisputable. They're saying things that they know aren't true. In regard to that absurdity then, we've seen that it's not verse 24, so we have to accept it is verse 23. And Jesus explains that and what that looks like in verses 28 and 29. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? If it is by the Spirit of God, if the authority that Jesus has is from above, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. 
or as the New King James, ESV, NIV, NASB, and CSB all say, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's there. It's even overtaking the Pharisees themselves because they refuse to be a part of it. The reality is that this means that they need to be thinking about repenting. And the reason we can see more of this is what Jesus says in the parable of verse 29. If you're going to enter into a strong man's house, if you're going to spoil his goods, you have to first bind the strong man. Now, there is a final binding that's still future, but the point of the parable is to say that when it comes to the kingdoms, Satan is bound so God can buy, so Jesus can come and transfer us from his kingdom. The exorcism does not demonstrate any sort of machinery by Satan, but rather the fact that God has the authority now to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, as Paul says in Colossians 1.13. The dragon who stole the goods in the first place has been dealt with. The goods can now be taken back. We can now be taken back. The God of this world has met his match. And what that means particularly for us is that we need to come to the one who is able to do that. The one who is able to give us this great privilege of being able to worship God, to be a part of his kingdom, and to love him and serve him forever, and have the hope of resurrection. We have to know now is the time for a decision of what we're going to do with Jesus. And even here, Jesus keeps going and says there is a danger. A danger in the possibility of getting this wrong. Verse 30. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him neither in this age, neither in the world to come. Verse 30. Verse 30 realistically warns against sitting on the fence, or rather trying to sit on the fence. Very exclusive statement, Jesus says, if you are not with me, then you are against me. And then using the imagery of the harvest that would come at the end of days, he says that those who do not gather with him scatter abroad. If you're not working with him and for him, you're actually against him. In many ways, this is a reminder of what I've said a couple times in our Matthew series, reminding us that we are born rejecting Jesus. We don't, aren't born neutral to him. We are born against him. Therefore, it is impossible to sit on the fence. 
And so if we attempt to sit on the fence, if we attempt to simply say, I'm not going to gather with you, but I'm not going to scatter or work against you, we're staying in that spot of being against him in the first place. This is particularly seemingly a warning against those of verse 23, who are asking the question, but are still uncertain about whether to confess that Jesus is indeed the Son of David, that he is indeed Lord and Christ. This is the warning against us who, while not being anti-Christian, may not necessarily come to be a Christian, to come to Christ, love him, and accept him. So don't try to stay on the fence. You're not on it. Come to Christ. Come and believe. And then the verses in 31 and 32 seem to go back to verse 24, the reality of the Pharisees and how they're doing differently. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against this Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Jesus essentially double-clicks on this one. He says it, and then in parallel line, he says it again. Any blasphemy, any speaking against will be forgiven unto men, except for the speaking against of the Holy Spirit. And then he says it again, even to the point of speaking against the Son of Man, he will be forgiven, but not the speaking of against the Holy Spirit. And there's immediately two things that are odd here that start getting us all confused and concerned. And we do need to acknowledge that if any of you, before we get started, I just want to say if any of you are worried about possibly committing this sin, then you haven't. The Pharisees have committed the sin. They receive this warning and they keep on doing it. There's a hardness and callousness to the sin. That's exactly why it is unforgivable. Not because you wouldn't be forgiven if you repented, but to use the author of Hebrews' words, it is impossible to restore you again to repentance. And that is the first strange thing, the very thought of being unforgivable. Jesus' blood can wash away any sin. So why is this, whatever this blasphemy against the Spirit looks like, how is it particularly unforgivable? At the same time, that's not as strange as we would think. Listen in on Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. You can turn there if you would like. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift 
and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the, God of Son, the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Here that the point is they won't be forgiven because they won't repent. And what it's shown is that it's those who have started to see the realities and the truth of the gospel and then have turned away. Sometimes we'd call it apostatizing and turning away from the truth that you once said was there, turning from us to show that they were never of us. The author of Hebrews isn't done. He'll say again in Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fire and indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he has sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How much sore punishment those who trod underfoot the Son of God, who outraged the Spirit of grace, despise the blood of the covenant. There no longer remaineth the sacrifice for sins. And it's similar in the context of those who begin to understand but never actually accept. Servant type of soil, as we'll see in Matthew chapter 13. Not actually believing, having faith, repenting. The other strange thing about Matthew is the fact that there seems to be more protection for the Holy Spirit than for Jesus. When they're equal in divinity, and within the function of the Trinity, the Son seems to have priority, just as the Father would have priority over the Son. But if we interpret blasphemy against the Spirit, the speaking against the Spirit, within the context, we start to see how both of these things make sense and fit. Jesus, after all, is responding to the motivations behind the Pharisees that they're making this absurd claim they should know to be false, the suppressing of the truth and unrighteousness, willfully, consciously. It's not a judge error in judgment, like speaking against Jesus would be. It's an error of the will. The blasphemy of the Spirit is a willful and knowing attribution of the work of the Spirit to the devil. And in that way, it really does explain, because it's the same thing that's happening in Hebrews. 
They should know, but they've chosen the wrong side. They should know all of the things intellectually, but they still choose to reject. D.A. Carson writes, The distinction between blasphemy against the Son of Man and blasphemy against the Spirit is the first sin is rejection of the truth of the Gospel, but there may be repentance and forgiveness for that. Whereas the second sin is rejection of the same truth in full awareness that this is exactly what one is doing. Thoughtfully, willfully, and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit, even though there can be no other explanations of Jesus' exorcisms than that. It thus becomes a declaration that one is against God. This provides a clue for understanding how the unforgivable sin of which Jesus here speaks compares with the sins referred to in Hebrews 6, 4-6. Hebrews 10, 26-31, and possibly 1 John 5, 16. In each instance, there is a self-conscious perception of where the truth lies and the light shines and a willful turning away from it. So don't suppress the truth. Everyone, or at least almost everyone in this room, has reason to cognitively know the gospel and where our hope lies, not in anything we do, but in who Jesus is and that his authority comes from above. So don't turn away. By God's grace, anyone who has accepted him won't turn away. But I do believe that part of the reason we have the warnings it's because they are part of God's grace to sustain us. And so in light of that, I warn you, don't turn away from the gospel you have accepted, at least in your mind. Fully accept it in your heart. And keep on being faithful to the Lord. Jesus then concludes his response with a similar illustration throughout Matthew. We've seen it in 3, 10 through 12, where John the Baptist is responding to the Pharisees, saying they need to bring fruit worthy of repentance. We've seen it from Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount in 7, 16 through 20, as a warning against false teachers that would creep in. And now we see it here, the tree and its fruit, and how it's about the root and the heart to produce good, lasting repentance. Verse 33, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. In one sense, this further adds to the absurdity of the claim that Jesus is doing anything from the devil's handiwork. Because his works being good, his fruit being good, it shows that the tree itself is good. But the primary point that Jesus makes is not that, but to say that the words that are being said by the Pharisees, 
Those words are demonstrating that their heart is evil. Their speaking against the Holy Spirit is showing that their heart is against God. Verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth good things, and an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. O generation of vipers, O generation of snakes, O, Jesus even says, O offspring of the serpent, you are evil. You're making it clear. Yet he does say that sometimes they do say good things. Fruits all not always immediately apparent. But he says that that's so strange because it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. A good man will out of the good treasure of his heart bring forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bring forth evil things. And so in their evil speech of verse 24, they have particularly shown an evil heart that is willfully against God. And so Jesus then finishes with this. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the days of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Within isolation, these verses themselves also seem a little bit strange and lead us to have a bit of a would would lead us to have a bit of a works righteousness system. By your words you're being justified, and by your words condemned. But within the context of verses 22 to 24, the words in question, the idle words, are not so much just not, uh, not so much careless words as much as empty words. The Pharisees' empty claim that it is by Beelzebub. And the words that are saving and justifying and the words that are condemning are the words of what we do with Jesus and who we claim him to be. Are we going to claim him to be Lord and confess that he is Lord, because our hearts know that to be true and have believed that he raised him from the dead? Or are we going to confess something else about Jesus? Something about his existence, something about who he is that is contrary to the truth? And in that sense, what this all comes down to, what this whole passage says, is that we need to confess that Jesus is Lord. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 10, 6, and following, The righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So make the tree good. 
believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that God raised him from the dead and he can forgive us from our sins and thus give us hope. Father, we do thank you for that reality. That it is not a, a concern about our works or our words, but that it is confessing, calling upon you, knowing that you are our only hope because our sins are many, but you have the authority to transfer us out of the power of Satan into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We thank you that you have already done that. And we ask that if there is anyone here who isn't in the kingdom of the beloved Son, that today would be the day that you would lead them in that direction. And Lord, I, I do thank you for the time to think about these words. May we continue to do so as we go from here. And I pray in Jesus' name. To Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>